fairly brain like mine anyway, at least. All right. This morning, I, I want to share on something that it's been a long, long time since I specifically shared on this, and I felt that it was time to uh, revisit it. Uh, it's an important subject, and uh, I want to talk this morning about the believer and his money. Now, I said his money, not being sexist there. I probably should have called it believers and their money, uh, so it includes all of us. Uh, but actually, when you see that written down, the believer and his money, it doesn't sound that spiritual. It's not something that kind of leaps out of the page and grabs your attention, does it? But if I was to tell you that in, in about a sixth of the Gospels and about one-third of the parables and one-fourth of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus specifically, deliberately addresses the whole subject of money and possessions, finances, personal possessions, uh, then hopefully that will get your attention because it's a big subject matter in Scripture. In fact, it may surprise you to know that Jesus talked about money and personal possessions more, in fact, more than heaven and hell put together. There are over 700 references to such things throughout Scripture. And so, Jesus spoke on money matters because money matters. It matters to you. It matters to me. It matters to the church. It matters to missions. It matters to evangelism. It matters to every single human being on earth. Money matters. Did you know that God Himself associates our ability to handle personal possessions with our ability to handle spiritual things? Did you know that? Well, this is what the Scriptures tell us. In Luke chapter 16, from verse 10, I'm going to read this in the New Living Translation. Jesus said, Unless you are faithful in small matters, you won't be faithful in large ones. If you cheat, even in a little, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. If you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's money, why should you be trusted with money of your own? For no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who dearly loved their money naturally scoffed at all of this. And so you see in that scripture, Jesus is saying that how we handle money and personal possessions is aligned to greater responsibility to the true riches, which are spiritual. And so there's a coming together of those two things. Even when God does, and He does, invariably bless us with material blessings. And it's wonderful when it happens, and we all enjoy that, and we benefit from that. But even then, there are warnings on how we handle all of that. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things which he possesses. So there's a little warning there. When God does bless materially, 
that we don't become covetous. And in Luke 12, 34, Jesus made this remarkable statement. It's very profound. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So in other words, Jesus said that our heart always very naturally follows our treasure. Now, our treasure could be any number of things. It may not necessarily be money. In fact, if, if I was to spend a week with you every day, 24-7 for a week, intimately got to know you uh, and just listen to you talk, at the end of that week, I'm quite sure I would know what your treasure is because the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And I would know what really is the thing that really, really grabs you. That would be your treasure, what you spend your energies on, what you spend your time on, what you spend your money on, what you spend your abilities on. All of those things would be your treasure. That would be what your heart would be following. And so we need to be very, very careful then on what is our treasure. All of us has got treasures. So we need to examine those treasures because our heart will follow them. And if there's something wrong with the treasure, then our heart will be following the wrong thing. And so Jesus made that very clear. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we've got to ask ourselves, what is my treasure? Now, thankfully, I'm sure they're legitimate and, and wholesome and good, and that's fine. Your heart's okay to follow that. But you need to ask yourself, is what my heart following, is it in any way taking me away from the things of God? Is it in any way diminishing my spirituality? And if it is, then we need to quit following that. And if that just happens to be material things, then we most definitely need to watch that because it could be a snare to us. So throughout our Christian life, all of us are involved in how we handle our finances and our material possessions, and that will be a good indicator of where we are spiritually, actually. Now, God knows that we're physical beings, that we live in a material world. He understands fully that we have to look after our families, we have to pay our rents, our mortgages, our cars, we've got to get petrol, we've got to buy food, maybe go on a holiday. Uh, all of these are, are legitimate things. We've got to pay our taxes, our rates, all of those things all require finances to do that. Uh, some of us has got maybe other pursuits, hobbies that we enjoy, and maybe that causes us to, to spend a little bit of money uh, on those things, and, and all of those and any of those are fine. Those are legitimate. There's nothing wrong with those as long as they don't have us, as long as we possess them rather than them possessing us. Jesus himself uh, gives some good advice on things. When, he, when we talk about things in Matthew chapter 5, which is a very uh, familiar portion of Scripture. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, which is a follow-on from 5, but in 
Matthew chapter 6, reading from verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cupid to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Did you notice how Jesus associates how God cares with us and about our needs with what we think about them? on how we get concerned and worry about them. So he says, make sure that you put the kingdom first. God already knows you need all of these things. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, every Christian ought to be aware, and many aren't, that there's a difference, vast difference between stewardship and ownership. Stewardship and ownership. We've got to realize the difference. In other words, that everything we possess, God owns. We're simply stewards of it. And even though we may call it our own, and even though we may think of it as our own, but yet the Scripture teaches above and beyond that which He has given us to possess, actually He owns it, and we're simply stewards of all of it. It's not a case of God, and we'll talk about tithing in a moment. It's not a case of God saying, well, look, I'm requesting 10%, but the 90%, all that belongs to you. I just want 10%. God owns it all, 100% of it. But how we handle it, how we're stewards of it, is the spiritual part of it that God looks at, and He is much interested in how we do that. For instance, the Haggai, verse two, chapter 2, verse 8, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the field is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. So God's letting us know that the whole earth belongs to Him, and everything we harvest from it and everything we gain from it all belongs to Him. We're simply stewards of it. There are several parables in the Scriptures that Jesus taught specifically on stewardship. For instance, the parable of the talents, Matthew 25. The parable of the minas in Luke 19. The parable of the rich young ruler in Luke 18. The parable of the unjust steward in Luke 16. And the parable of the foolish farmer in Luke chapter 12. Let's have a little squint at Luke chapter 12. In verse 13 of Luke chapter 12, 
Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought to within him, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. Notice the many personal pronouns are here. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose things, whose, then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The foolish farmer used six eyes and four mice. <laughs> so it was obvious that he thought, all that is mine to do with what I want. It's all mine. I worked for it. I earned it. I got it. It's mine. And God says, no, it's mine. And you haven't been very wise. You haven't been a good steward. And you're going to lose it all anyway. You're going to leave it all. Raymond likes to tell me the story of the rich man who died. Somebody said, how much did he leave behind? And he says, he left all of it. And that's the brutal truth of it, isn't it? And so as long as we're on this earth, then we're going to be stewards of what God gives us. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the firstfruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Proverbs 11, 24 to 26. There is he who scatters, yet increases more. There is one who withholds more than is right, but it lends to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be upon the head of him who sells it. John Bunyan said, There once was a man, they called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. <laughs> That was his quaint way of putting it. And so money, or the lack of it, or the abundance of it, the desire of it, the pleasure of it, the need of it, the good of it, the snare of it, the sharing of it, all of these things are an indispensable part of our whole spiritual lives. And how we handle it is vitally important. It's not surprising then that Scriptures has much to say about this. I want to share with you a little bit about tithing. Now, this may be new to some of you. I don't know. I know that some of you are faithful tithers. Uh, others, perhaps, has never actually entered into the tithing. Uh, others, perhaps, it's uh, not something that you've given much thought to ever as a Christian. Tithing is first mentioned in Genesis 14, verse 18. 
And it's first mentioned there in connection with Abraham and a priest, king priest called Melchizedek. And this Melchizedek was enigmatic, mysterious, uh, only mentioned twice in the Old Testament, Genesis 14, and also in Psalm 110, verse 4. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews, be that Paul or whoever, uh, talks about this priest king Melchizedek, and he talks to him for a couple of reasons, and he also introduces uh, tithing, talks about tithing in relationship to this king priest and, and Abraham. And so Genesis 14, 18, it says, This Melchizedek, king of Salim, brought out bread and wine. He was, priest of, he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe, or one-tenth, that is, of all that he had. Now, the reason why I read that scripture, first of all, is because uh, there's, there's always been an argument that tithing is an Old Testament principle. It's a concept that's only in the Old Testament. So therefore, as New Testament believers, we really don't need to be concerned about it at all because it's an Old Testament concept. Well, certainly for sure, certainly in Old Testament, because we just read from the Old Testament, but it's not just under the law. And sometimes we get mixed up with what's in the Old Testament and what's under the law in the Old Testament. And this Melchizedek was at least 430 years before the law was ever introduced, before Moses ever came along. And in this instance, Abraham had just fought a... a uh, many wars it were with several kings and came back with all the loot, with all the bounty and met this enigmatic, mysterious uh, king-priest called Melchizedek whom the Bible says in Hebrews there was no genealogy recorded of him. And uh, so we don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. And that was deliberate because the Holy Spirit wanted him to be a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who was to come who was in eternity past and is eternity future. And even though he had a physical birth and a physical death, and even though we can record his genealogy, but Melchizedek was just a type of Christ in that Christ now has a priesthood that continues forever because he lives in the power of an endless life, Hebrews 7 says. We'll come to that in a moment. All right. So Abraham comes and he's so impressed and he's so blessed, and he so wants to honor this king priest that he gives him a tenth of all that he possessed, a tithe. Now, I wonder where he got that idea from. Could it be that he remembered that when Abel gave to the Lord the firstlings of his flock, and so Abraham was giving the first fruits of all that he possessed, all he gained during this mini war, could it be that? I know that historians tells us that a tithe or a tenth was quite common in those days, that even, even pagans did that. And so there was nothing unusual in that. Uh, perhaps what was a little bit unusual is it seems to be this is the first time that Abraham met this king priest, Melchizedek, and he immediately felt to respond in this way 
that he would give him uh, for his priesthood this uh, tenth of all that he possessed. In Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 22, I will not read it uh, for the sake of time, but you can note that down. You can read it in your own time. Uh, you'll find it, uh, uh, Jacob, uh, you remember how he, he had to go and leave his family home and his, his dad blessed him before he went and he had to go to his grandfather Bethuel and his uncle Laban and hide out there because of what happened between him and his brother Esau. And, uh, and how that on the journey he put his head down in a stone uh, to sleep that night and suddenly had this dream, this vision of this ladder get up into heaven and angels uh, ascending and descending upon it. And he says, this is none other than the, the house of God. And he called it Bethel, the house of God. And then he said, Lord, if you bless me when I go here, and in fact, Lord, if you prosper me and if you take care of me and if I'm able to come back to my family someday, I promise you I will give you a tenth of all I possess. I wonder where he got that idea from. Hmm? Maybe from Abraham. And so we see here that it's not uncommon in the Old Testament. Now, whenever you come into Hebrews chapter 7, You find here the writer to the Hebrews is concerned about them. <clears throat> and his concern is this. And I mentioned this quite recently in another context, another sermon, but his concern was, was simply this, that the, the Hebrew Christians were coming under tremendous pressure and persecution. And it was so severe, in fact, that, that some of them were falling back. Some of them were, were no longer walking in the faith, no longer following Christ. Some of them actually had stopped coming to church altogether. That's why the writer says, Do not forsake the assemblings of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. And so, and part of their problem was, you see, that because they were Jewish Christians, they'd been brought up under Judaism, they'd been brought up under the priesthood and the ceremonies and the rituals and the vestments of the priests and the great temple they had. And, and all of that was very physical. It was tangible. They could see that. They could touch that. Uh, and, 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 and they didn't have to think too much about it. But now, as, as born-again believers and as Jewish Christians, now they're going to have to walk by faith and not by sight. And God has, at this point, has totally given up on the Jewish priesthood. It's gone. It's no longer acceptable to God, even though they were continuing on in it. But it was no longer acceptable because God now gave His Son to be our great high priest. Now, the problem was then, of course, that our great high priest is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's not here in the flesh. They can't see Him. They're coming under pressure. They're going to have to walk by faith, not by sight. And over here is the Jewish the old covenant Jew, and he has still got his temple, and he's still got the priests, and he's still got the rituals, and he's still making the sacrifices, and, and suddenly that appeared a little bit more appealing, seemed a little bit more safer and tangible than this business of walking by faith and getting persecuted for it. And so in order for the writer to the Hebrews to explain about the priesthood is now gone, God's not accepting it anymore, Jesus Christ is our great high priest, he's going to have to help them to understand that again. 
and teach them the truth of that. And so what does he do? In Hebrews chapter 7, part of what he does, he goes back and he reminds them that long before there ever was an Aaronic priesthood, long before there was ever a Levitical priesthood, long before the law was ever introduced, there was a priesthood. And Melchizedek was the priest. And that Father Abraham, he even gave tithes to this Melchizedek priest. Are you still with me? And so he's trying to show the superiority of Melchizedek priesthood even to the Levitical priesthood. And then in this, Hebrews 7, he's shown them also that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, was, he, he was shown in type in the Old Testament through Melchizedek. Uh, because we don't know where Melchizedek came from, we don't know where he went to, we don't know when he was born, we don't know when he died. There's no genealogy of his father or his mother. So it's very mysterious. And so the writer of the Hebrews said, hey, listen, the reason why it's like that is to show you that it's as if Melchizedek is still ministering, he's still living on because we don't know when he died. So for all we know, he still could be living on. That's what he's saying here. But he was only a type of Christ who was to come and to be our great high priest who would never die, who would live in the power of an endless life. So the Christ priesthood now is far, far superior to the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. That's just what the writer here is saying. And to help them understand that, he takes them away back even before the law and says, listen, there was a priesthood there that was greater even than, than Aaron's priesthood. And now there's a priesthood now greater than Aaron's priesthood. Are you still with me? All right. Now, for this Melchizedek, king of Salim, priest of the Most High God, by the way, under the Old Testament, and most particularly under the law, you couldn't be a priest and a king. Melchizedek, the name means king of righteousness, and Salim means peace, king of peace. You couldn't be a priest and a king at the same time. Some tried to intrude into both offices, and they get dealt very severely by God with that. But he says, hey, listen, here was a king priest way back before the law and Christ is our king priest after the law. Now, have you got that? All right. And so this is what he's saying to them. Now he said, Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salim, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better." Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So what the writer sends somebody this, listen. He says, whenever Abraham paid tithes to this king priest Melchizedek, because all you lot, you Levites and all you priests, because you lot were still in the loins of Abraham, in, in a way, in a way, you paid tithe to him too. 
That's what he's saying here. So he's connecting them to what was before the law, and he's trying to connect them to what's here after the law. It's interesting he talks about tithes there, isn't it? Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there of another priest? Another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he whom these things are spoken to belongs to another tribe from which no man is officiated at the altar. It is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there rises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, one more little thing here. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. And this was another problem that these Jewish Christians had. Because Jesus, in order of the natural order of the Levitical priesthood, he didn't fit in because he didn't even come from the tribe of Levi. It wasn't related to Aaron in any shape, form, or fashion. And that's one more reason why the writer here takes them beyond Aaron, beyond Levitical priesthood, away back to Melchizedek. To say, hey, listen, there was a priest, and he wasn't of any tribe of Judah because there wasn't the tribes in those days. He didn't come under the Levitical law. And his was legitimate, so legitimate, the fact that Abraham paid tithes to him and honored him that way. Now, Jesus Christ, we need to honor him, and we need to bless him, and we need to accept him as our priest and our king. He is our priest, and he is our king. Amen? All right. It's interesting that in the midst of all of that, that the writer to the Hebrews talks about giving of the tithe. Now the tithe under the law of Moses in Leviticus 27, in fact the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 7 we just read even mentioned this briefly, the tithe was to be paid to the Levites, it was for the maintenance of the priesthood. It was for the maintenance of the priesthood and all that the priesthood had to do, all that they had to officiate and the upkeep of the tabernacle of the temple, all of that. That's what it was for. Malachi calls it the storehouse when he talks about the tithe. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. It's the same principle. All right? And so this is important. And then in order to reiterate that, the apostle Paul in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14 says, Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word of God and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And the labor is worthy of his hire. So let not any believer ever think that somehow or other it's wrong for those within the house of God who leads the house of God that somehow or other they should not receive any remuneration. It's scriptural, it's right, it's proper. It ought to be done. And thankfully, it is being done to, for the most part to one degree or other. And so the Apostle Paul is making sure that that's in there. Now, it is true that the Apostle Paul many times made tents. 
But he did that on occasions. Remember, he was an apostle, and part of his job was to go out and evangelize and get a group of believers together, stay with them a little while, begin to teach them and pastor them, and then appoint somebody else, and then he would move on and do the same thing all over again. That was the ministry of the apostle. And so when he began with a very small group, he didn't expect anything from them. And so he went out and made tents so he wouldn't be a burden to them. But other churches who, who were blessed and who had grown and who had been prospered, then they would send to him again and again in order for him to go to different places and to continue his ministry. So that's all fairly nothing unusual in that. It's scriptural. It's right. And the reason why I bring this up is because once in a while you meet a Christian who tries to squirm out of that and tries to make out some reason why people shouldn't be blessed and taken care of who's leading the house of God. And it's completely and utterly wrong. It's scriptural to do it. Within reason. With what is reasonable, I should add. Now it could be argued that in the Old Testament, uh, that tithing is an Old Testament principle, it's an Old Testament concept, it's an Old Testament word. And it is an Old Testament word. But then R.T. Kendall says that we as believers, we use a lot of Old Testament words like sin and righteousness and blood and atonement and faith. All of these are, are Old Testament words that we use very freely. And even though tithe is an Old Testament word, but, and here's the, here's the thing he says, it catches people out. Somehow we think that everything in the Old Testament is under the law, including tithing. But I've just shown you that tithing began even before the law ever was, <laughs> over four centuries before the law ever happened. So, it, 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 so even though it's an Old Testament word, but it's not something that was under the law. It was before the law. And so it's a principle that has been there. Now, Jesus makes a very interesting observation in Matthew 23, 23. <clears throat> Uh, and again, he's up against it with the scribes and the Pharisees who were continually trying to trap him and snare him with his words and his actions. And he turns around to them in Matthew 23, 23, and here's what he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Now, but listen. Those you ought to have done, speaking of what they've been tithing, those you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So notice here Jesus is saying that these scribes and Pharisees, they were, they were long on tithing, but they were short on mercy and faith and justice. They were big into tithing, scrupulously so, but they're very short in faith and mercy and justice. Now he said, you have left aside the weightier parts of the law, which is faith, mercy, and justice. But he says, not that you should leave the others undone, but you really need to pick up on these, the weightier parts. Now, if he had been trying to say that tithing was unimportant or you shouldn't do it or it's not, he didn't. He says, not to leave that undone, but hey, listen, you need to pick up on this. You need to really come to terms with faith, justice, and mercy. That's what he's saying. Malachi chapter 3 is the tither's charter. 
And every tither has ever been his been encouraged and challenged by Malachi chapter 3, which is the last chapter of the Old Testament. And in verse 8, Malachi 3, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. So here people here, at this point, he even had gotten so far away, even from their very law. By the way, the law demanded it. And they had got even away from what the very law had demanded, that they were no longer even doing it. And God says, you're robbing me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, saith the Lord of hosts. The only time in the whole of Scripture that God ever says to put him to the test, to try him. And lo and behold, what does it do with? Our possessions, our money. You know why God did that? Because he knows it's got such an important part of our lives. Whether we want to even admit it or not, it does. And it's a big challenge. So he said, And try me now in this, said the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour you out for you such a blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall the vine field to bear fruit for you in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, saith the Lord of hosts. For you have robbed me. That's a big statement, isn't it? In that you have not brought the tithes and the offerings into the storehouse. So there's a big challenge in all of this, isn't there? And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're almost finished here. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. In verses 1 and 2, Paul's speaking about an offering here. And in this statement of Paul's, we see the very reason why God wants us to give our money and of our material possessions. Now concerning the collection for the saints, these were Christians at Jerusalem who were struggling as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So Paul here is writing to the Corinthian church. He goes into this a lot deeper, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And he's saying, look, I want you to take up an offering for the struggling saints in Jerusalem. But here's what I want you to do. Somebody's going to come and collect it. I don't want you to wait until they come and they have a big offering. So I want you to start right now and I want you to start lay past week after week after week after week after week. As God has prospered you, lay aside something. Now he doesn't specifically mention the tithe. 
And maybe that's because he's talking to Gentiles here. Certainly the Jewish mindset would be very, very mindful of tithes. And so because he's talking to Gentiles, he's maybe putting it in another way. But he's letting them to know, and we'll see before we end about proportional giving, which is similar to tithing. Same, basically. So in this instance, he says, do it week after week after week after week after week so there's no big collection when we come to get it so that you get into the rhythm and the habit of doing this. And so he's very conscious about this. And so, first of all, there's several things about this we'll do, do, deal with quickly about this statement of Paul's. First of all, if we tithe, if we give proportionately, if we do it regularly, we acknowledge God's provision and His providence in our lives. That's what we're doing. We're acknowledging God's provision and providence in our lives. Verse 2 in the authorized version says, As God has prospered us. So bringing us all back to the stewardship thing, that God is the owner of it all, we're simply the stewards of it as long as we're on this earth. All right? So depending how tightly or how lightly you hold on to it will be an indicator of how spiritual you really are. Because we can talk a lot of spirituality, but when right down to the practical stuff, this is what God looks at. And so, God is the source of it all. Now, He supplies it through supply lines. That may be your employer, maybe the government, it may be your job, maybe your career, maybe your business. Lots of supply lines that God uses, but He is the source of it all. Because what happens if that supply line dries up? If it's no longer there. But if God's your source, He can open up another way, can't He? He can have another supply line. I know that even though later this morning and somebody was telling me that they're about to lose their job and I know that over the years that happened to many of you over the years where you lost your job and you thought, oh dear, what am I going to do? And then God had provided something greater and something better. Because He is our source, isn't He? Secondly, we acknowledge His Lordship over us. Because His Lordship over us is not just in our worship, but it's in our work. Not just in our, if I could use the term, this, our sacred life, but our secular life. Now, it's a shock to many believers, by the way, to realize that Jesus still stands over against the treasury. Remember the story in the Bible, the little woman with the two mites, and how that Jesus went into the treasury where they had those beautiful bowl-like receptacles for people to come and put their offerings in? And how that Jesus went right up to where they were, and he stood there right at them watching what they were putting in. Could you imagine if in the offering this morning, if I come right down from here and says, let me just see what Clifford's given today. Huh? You get a course shock. Tell me to clear off, mind your own business. But that's what God does. He knows. And Jesus said, look, he said, he brought his disciples, he says, look, he says, those who had much gave of their abundance, he says, but here's this little woman. She had only two mites. She gave all of it. And Jesus pointed her out to the disciples, showing the sacrifice that she had made. And so he still stands over against the treasury. 
Actually, God doesn't need your money per se. Certainly he doesn't need it in heaven. Sure he doesn't. Streets are paved with gold. What will he do with it in heaven anyway? But his kingdom on earth needs it. And we need to give it. Because otherwise if we don't, we'll be stunted in our spiritual growth. And anyway, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says that God loves a cheerful giver. And so we acknowledge God's provision in our lives. We acknowledge His Lordship over us. We acknowledge our stewardship under Him. Verse 2, it says, upon the first day of the week. So giving is both to be constant and systematic. Not haphazard or random or when we feel like it or if it's convenient. It's to be a regular thing. Now, you could argue the point of it being on the first day of the week is every Sunday, but I know that many of you are paid monthly, and that's okay. I know that you bring it in monthly, and that's wonderful. Thank God for that. As long as it's systematic, as long as it's constant, because that's what it needs. Now, you would never think of being random or haphazard with your mortgage or to pay your taxes or your rent or your rates or your car payments or anything. You, just, you wouldn't even dream of that. Why? Because you'd be in big trouble if you did. You'd take it off you, wouldn't it? So why should it be any different when it comes to the kingdom of God? In fact, we should be more constant and systematic. Then let every one of you, so giving is to be both personal and responsible. Every one of you. Now, can I put a little caveat in here? You could be a man or woman married to an unsaved partner. And perhaps you're not in that position where the money is not actually yours. So I'm not so sure that you can tie that of your husband's money if he's an unbeliever and doesn't want you to do it, or vice versa. But if you have any money of your own, which is your own, if you get an allowance, if that's the way that works in your household, then you can tie that to that. Is that okay? Hmm, you're not too sure, but... I Then it says, lay by him in store. So giving is to be both thoughtful and purposeful. Now I know that as older believers and as people who gives regularly and ties regularly, we kind of get into the habit of it and the rhythm of it. And that's it's a holy habit. That's good. Wonderful. But sometimes you can forget and, and you become blasé about it. But we should just think sometimes about where it goes, how it blesses, who it reaches because the money that you give is reaching people in the Philippines, reaching people in Ukraine, it's reaching people in China and India and Africa and all over the world, as well as blessing in here. You know, so, so sometimes you just need to think, hey, listen, when I give this, this is going to be such a blessing to the kingdom of God. It's going to reach people I'll never, ever meet to get to the glory. As God has prospered him, so it's to be giving is to be both proportional and pleasurable, as God has prospered him. So to the degree that God blesses you and prospers you. Then fourthly, we are giving thanks to God for his blessing. So it's a tangible expression of our thanks to God. Tangible, practical. And then we give, finally here we give because it's a principal part of God's reward system. No question that God wants to bless you. Luke 6.38, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, 
it will be measured back to you. Not a good scripture, isn't it? Part of God's reward system. Malachi said, And see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out a blessing that there may be not enough room to receive it. And then Jesus, and we don't know when he said this or where he said this or to whom he said this to, but Paul recorded it. Luke recorded in the book of Acts that Paul said this. In Acts 20, 35, Paul said, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> lots and lots of Christians have never actually owned that scripture. They say, how can that be? You know why? You know why they haven't owned that scripture? Because it's risky. It's nice and safe to receive, isn't it? But it's risky to give, Clifford, isn't it? It's nice and comfortable to receive. Sometimes it's mighty inconvenient to give. But Jesus said it is more blessed. It's wonderful to be able to give. And as much as we enjoy receiving, and there's no harm in enjoying receiving, and there's no harm receiving at all, it's wonderful. But it's much more blessed to give. And I trust that all of you today has been in the place where you have been able to give something to someone and you have derived such pleasure out of it more than the person that got it. As much as they were blessed, you were doubly blessed. It's wonderful when you can do that. I haven't time to read all of this. and In fact... I really don't have time to read hardly any of it. But just to remind you in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, which is the two wonderful chapters on giving in the New Testament. Paul took two whole chapters to talk about one offering. So don't get mad at the preacher if he takes two minutes to speak about the offering. Two whole chapters for one offering. That wasn't for him. It was for the saints in Jerusalem. But listen to what he says. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God. By the way, he mentions grace seven times in these two chapters. Grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great tribulation of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God." So we urged Titus that as he had begun, he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Paul called giving a grace. It's a graceful thing to do. It's a gracious thing to do. It's godly, it's righteous, it's good, 
wholesome right to do. It's a grace in your life. And then he goes on. Verse 12, for if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. When you're a willing giver, there may be times when you haven't much to give, but you're willing. If you had it, you would do it. So you give out of what you have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, and their abundance also may supply your lack, that there be equality. As it is written, he has gathered much, has nothing left over, he has gathered little, has no lack. And then when he goes on down, verse 6 of chapter 9, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of us, as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, not because somebody's twisting your arm up your back or somebody's beating you over the head for it, and you know that we do not do that in here. In fact, sometimes I even forget to take up the offering. The man has to remind me. And that's a bad thing too. And this is why I'm preaching on it today, because it is important. Not just that the church and mission and so forth uh, get supply, but it's important for your sake that you give, that you become a giver. Because it's a grace that God wants to see in your life. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he is dispersed abroad, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Notice how Paul here keeps referring them back to Scripture. To show them what he's talking about is not just raising an offering, it's a scriptural thing, it's an important thing. And then he goes on to say at the end, and I love this, right after he spent two whole chapters talking about one offering, he says, by the way, whenever you give, he says, verse 14, and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Then he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. <laughs> You notice here how Paul, after spending two whole chapters talking about one offering, he says, well, by the way, by the way, he said, it's a small thing in comparison to God's indescribable gift to us in Christ. Isn't that lovely? Amen. Now, a couple of quotes, and then Martin's going to come and do the Holy Communion. Just to encourage you, all right? Henry Crowell, founder of Quaker Oats, None of us had their parties this morning. All right. Quaker wrote, when he started his business, he said he would honor God. For over 40 years, he gave 60% of his income to God's work. That's not bad, sure, isn't it? William Colgate, toothpaste, palm olive fame, tied on the first dollar he made. And over the years, he increased that 20% then 30%, then 50%, then 60%. Towards the end of his life, he had become so successful that he gave the whole of his yearly income, all 100% of it, to give to the kingdom of God. Kraft Cheese, J.L. Kraft, said, The only investments I ever made which have paid constant increasing dividends is the money which I've given to the Lord. John D. Rockefeller Sr., I have tied every dollar God has entrusted to me 
And all I want to say is, if I had not tied the first dollar I made, I would not have tied the first million dollars I made. Mr. Hines of the Hines 57 variety was a tither. Sir Frederick Cotherwood, the great Christian industrialist, said every Christian should try tithing and prove God to see whether God does not bless as the prophet Malachi promised. John Stott, one of the great British preachers, said tithing or income is a minimum Christian obligation and that the church and its mission are bound to suffer when we disobey for God loves a cheerful giver. Billy Graham said the discovery, rediscovery of God's principles about money and tithing could revolutionize the church. R.T. Kendall said if every Christian would tithe, every congregation would be free of financial cares and could truly begin to make an impact on the world that would change it. The church instead is paralyzed. Tithing Christians could make a big difference. Dwayne Hulse said we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Then a couple of warnings. Christina Onassis, the Greek shipping heiress, said, Happiness is not based on money. The best proof of that is our family. Hmm. King Solomon, who's the richest man on earth in his day, said, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. He who loves abundance will increase. Nor he who loves abundance will increase. This is also vanity. Apostle Paul said, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And then finally, King David says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. Amen? So that was not the Sermon on the Amount. All right? I never mentioned the mounts. But you know what? The tithe is a great principle. You know why? Because it's fair. It's totally fair. Now, little you've got, how much you've got, is just one-tenth. That's fair, isn't it? God's always fair, isn't he? Amen. Amen. So, God bless you. Martin's going to come and he's going to share communion with us this morning.